Hi, this is State Senator Jill P. Carter, and you are listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the best source of news and notes on Maryland politics and policy. The Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of Maryland Association of Counties. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, good to be back. You just got back from California, had a business trip, but glad to have you back in the fold. I am delighted to be back on the East Coast and back on Eastern time. That's you know, that's the fun adjustment, but no, happy to be back and happy to be back on the pod. And Michael, I'm excited for today's episode. Yeah, I, I, I am too. I mean, I, I feel like we have sometimes stumbled into really good topics when we start talking about technology and where it fits with public safety and where it fits with public policy. And I mean, I think people who have been with the podcast for some time know that among the topics we've talked about a lot has been um, moving to next generation 911. And our association and our county governments and our leaders in public safety have been really, really invested to try and ramp up our level of service on public safety communications. Before 911 was the big focus, we were really focused on sort of radio and communication systems for our first responders and interoperability and things along those lines. So this is an issue with a pretty long tail for us. Um, I think it's a lively, interesting, and really important topic. So we're going to talk today about some of the technology that's behind these advances that we've made in Maryland and elsewhere with some really valuable partners. Yes, very, very proud to uh, to work with our county public safety professionals, our 911 specialists, emergency managers, other partners uh, in the General Assembly, namely Senator Cheryl Kagan, who has made Next Generation 911 a priority over several years. And Maryland now is indeed a leader to push um, this implement, this this critical technology, Michael, and I'm very, very proud of that. And today we're happy to have with us Lori Stone. Lori is a senior public safety advisor for the First Responder Network Authority or FirstNet Authority built by AT&T. FirstNet is the first nationwide network dedicated to public safety, and Lori is no stranger to Maryland, as she spent several years working on legal, operational, and planning requirements for the deployment of Maryland First, as Michael mentioned, radio networks. That was the statewide 700 megahertz public safety radio communication system. Lori, thank you so much for joining us today. We are excited. Thank you, Kevin and Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to speaking with you. So, Lori, I'd be happy if you could sort of set the table for us a little bit. Um, you know, AT&T is a corporation that everybody knows and has familiarity with a range of different services, but probably not everybody knows what a leader and, and centerpiece AT&T, AT&T has become in public safety communications and this kind of technology. So, I mean, if you could help us sort of put the ball on the tee a little bit with talk about FirstNet and you know, sort of how it came together and where AT&T fits into this big public safety offering. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate laying the, the basic foundation of FirstNet and where we are now in 2022. It really started back in, in 2001. And with the, the tragic events of 9-11 and the documented communications challenges that first responders had on all three of those uh, scenes that day and for the days afterwards during the recovery and operations, 
The 9-11 Commission looked at all of the different facets of that response and put together a report. And in that report, it called for for numerous improvements and changes to the way public safety operates. And one of the final recommendations that had not been implemented until 2012 was a a request that public safety receive its own communications network, communications platform. That was kind of a high-level way of saying they need their own ability to talk, not mixed up with the general public. What can we give them that is a separate platform? That report came out in 2004, and over the next several years, public safety leaders really lobbied very hard every time that they would visit Capitol Hill or talk to their elected federal officials, they would remind them that this recommendation was outstanding and that we do have challenges using a commercial wireless provider. We don't have our own network to share vital information. 2012 is when Congress finally acted and passed the Middle Class Tax Relief and Job Creation Act, which is an <laughs> interesting name for where first that ended up. But that's where we are. The law was passed and signed by the president in February of 2012. So we are about 10 and a half years old now as a federal agency. We are in the U.S. Department of Commerce. So I'm a federal government employee. And I always like to make that distinction when I'm talking with people. I don't work for AT&T. I don't sell you anything. So, Michael, we, we, we started in 2001. We are now in 2012 with the law being passed and standing up my agency and Congress giving us one mission to oversee the construction and operation of a nationwide public safety broadband network. Sometimes it's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Kevin. It's fascinating, Lori. And, and I guess, you know, it, it is a good distinction. This is built by AT&T. And I guess that that's the involvement here. Right. I mean, if you look at this and you think about somebody uh, maybe sitting in your chair and saying, OK, cool. How are we supposed to do this? Right. And so it seems like the obvious play would be to partner with someone in the private sector who has a lot of experience here and, and could get this rolling. So this really, truly is a public private partnership at the end of the day. Right. And it's pretty much the, the, the only one of its kind that I've ever heard of in terms of the scale and, and what it's doing for public safety. So it, it's an enormous operation. But where are you now? I mean, you've gone through the timeline and I know I've seen some stuff over the past few years that you have, you're almost 100 percent completely built out, if not already. So talk about that a little bit and, and sort of the, the the way that you got to where you are now and sort of the challenges and, and how you how you see yourself advancing even in, in the years ahead. That is a perfect setup, Kevin, for me to plug Maryland again. And I know you, uh, the state is a leader in next gen 911. Maryland had also been a leader in the first net consultation process, as it's so-called. We met with hundreds and hundreds of stakeholders around the state, and then we were the first state to actually meet with the federal FirstNet team back in 2014 to kick the whole consultation process off. All of that information that was heard and collected at those meetings across the country went into an RFP that was subsequently awarded to AT&T, and that happened in March of 2017. So we're about five and a half years now into our public-private partnership with AT&T. Kevin, as you mentioned, it, the scope of this is 
you know, 25 year contract. It is the largest co- federal contract that has been awarded. So as you can imagine, we have a lot of eyes on us, as I like to say, about how we're doing this, how we're managing it, and how we're really keeping track of AT&T's commitments to the federal government, which then are used by public safety. Well, I will say, Lori, I was involved in some of the organizing and and uh, and, and work that went in in the state of Maryland in that those first few years following you know, the events of 9/11. But in the early 2000s, while the commission was doing its work and setting up this grand design, we were spending a lot of time at the state and local level trying to work on just simple interoperability. I, I say the word simple, meaning not not as lofty a vision as what FirstNet has eventually evolved into. But at the time, you know, we had fire chiefs and police chiefs standing in circles, handing each other, you know, handing, handing their radios back and forth because, well, I'm on 450 and somebody else is on 700 megahertz and I have this company and you have that company. We can't talk to each other, even though we're fighting the same fire or we're at the site of the same emergency. So it started, you know, very much we got the ball rolling with an effort toward broader interoperable systems. But that longer term vision of having a platform and a network that everybody could could take advantage of really was the long term answer to, to what we needed at that time. And I mean, I'm really happy to be able to talk about it in the present tense rather than that speculative. We hope one day this will happen. It's great to be talking about it on the ground. It is. I've been talking about FirstNet first with the state of Maryland as an employee there. And then 2015, I joined the FirstNet Authority. So it's been the last 10 years of me talking about FirstNet. And I know people probably got a little tired of me just coming in with my PowerPoints and saying, what do you want in the network? What can we do? We heard the same two things, cost and coverage. The cost of this network can't be anything more than we're already paying. And the coverage has to be there. And I heartily agree with both of those sentiments. There's no mandate to use FirstNet. And if it doesn't work where you are, we don't want you to use it. But we do want you to be open to hearing about it and testing it and giving us your honest feedback. Right, so, I mean, those are reasonable standards to, to be able to, to, to try and meet. So I think that's, you know, for, for the decision makers at the local level, that's their value proposition. But to get to get to the point where that makes sense, that's where FirstNet needed to be this enormous project with lots and lots of infrastructure on the ground and, you know, poles and cables and all the various things that are involved in trying to create this backbone so that that proposition is there. You can talk to a jurisdiction here in Maryland, on the Eastern Shore, wherever, and say, we're ready to go. We're ready to on-ramp you onto this platform, and we're not going to have to start from scratch. We've already got pieces in place to make this make sense for you. So it's sort of, you know, you do your homework. It's, it's I don't know, it's kind of a field of dreams. Like, you build this, and we believe they will come because you can pass those tests. That, that's exactly right. In signing the contract with AT&T, we immediately had access to all of their current towers across the country. And they said, well, there's the band 14 spectrum that's licensed to the federal government. Band 14 is a 700 megahertz range, and it has really good qualities for uh, traveling long distances, also known as maybe propagation. It, it has a really good range and size and speed, so to speak. So AT&T said, we will put band 14 on our current towers. But in the meantime, 
FirstNet users have priority and preemption capabilities on all of our LTE spectrum. So we didn't need to wait for a provider to build towers and put the spectrum up necessarily. If you already had an AT&T tower in your backyard and you had the spectrum there, you're good to go. And so that made bringing people on um, in certain areas a lot quicker than we thought. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And that, and that certainly had to be a, a big and important part of that rollout. And again, that, that just makes sense. Another important, but I think sometimes overlooked aspect of FirstNet, and what's actually really cool, in my opinion, probably the coolest part of it, um, is a requirement that AT&T develops and deploys a fleet of mobile communication assets. I think they call these deployables, and that is to support law enforcement, fire, EMS, other public safety operations in the event where they need backup, right, or they have a massive event or a massive emergency, and you need to bring in equipment to help manage that emergency and help get communications up and ready. Um, why is that so important, Lori? And, and what are we seeing now with these deployables? I've seen some pretty cool stuff uh, rolling out in terms of what can be deployed to help folks in the event of, a, of an emergency, disaster, or a large event. The deployable program has proven to be very popular and, and just useful in remote and rural areas where the nearest tower might be several miles away, but you have a search and rescue operation you don't want to have to wait as long as it might be for a commercial carrier to bring out equipment. And also, a commercial carrier will charge your agency for bringing up that equipment, that deployable. FirstNet, these deployables are 100% free of charge, and they will stay as long as that agency needs them in that location. They also have um, a requirement to be on the air within 14 hours of when a fire chief, let's say, picks, picks up the phone and calls and says, we're having a problem in this area. What can we do? By the time that deployables in place and transmitting, it has to be 14 hours or with our contract with AT&T, there will be some penalties enacted. So they have to meet those requirements across the country. And a lot of times it's under 14 hours. It's more like four or six, eight, four or six hours. 14 hours is, you know, places like Alaska. And really, very remote rural where's a where's a lot of travel time involved. Can you talk about the logistics there, Lori? I mean, so so there there has to be a number of staging areas, I guess, across the country, and you have to have folks on call ready to go, like go teams, right, to get this stuff Absolutely. out quickly. That that's got to be. I mean, yeah. I'm very fascinated by the logistics there. Yeah, the logistics are something that just AT and T has has brought to the table that's I haven't seen before. When a public safety agency makes that request. It immediately goes into an engineering team, a radio network access team, a uh, the GNOC, which is the um, Global Network Operations Center. And those those teams look at what's happening. Maybe it was a fiber cut. And those outages are sometimes third-party companies that the restoration time might be unknown. Or it could be um, a hurricane. It could just be a very remote area where there's nothing around. So those teams get together and look to see what can we do, what what needs to be done. That might be putting a deployable in the air. There is a blimp, an aerostat now for FirstNet that provides 100 square mile coverage, 10 by 10 square miles. It was first went up uh, a few years ago in Louisiana during a hurricane. So they have everything from blimps to drones to uh, um, it's called a compact rapid deployable, and agencies can now buy this 
and they put it on the back of a regular pickup truck with a hitch, one person can deploy it and it has band 14 on there. So there's no 14-hour wait or request time. You just roll that out whenever you want and you're on the air during an emergency. So so I think like the the deployable is a component of this effort and I mean to some degree this has an awful lot of sizzle effect right I mean I know I know we were fortunate enough to get a a, a unit on site at a couple of Mako's recent conferences our 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 event last winter down in Cambridge and then in the summertime in in Ocean City and get an get an idea for our county decision makers to sort of see the system in action. But it's not just a mock-up. This wasn't just like a you know one of those Hollywood facade. Yeah, this is the pretend saloon, and behind the door there's nothing there. There were actually <laughs> yeah. there were actually specialists on site taking live calls, and you know someone's walking them through the the, the event, saying, "Okay, right now she's taking a call live for someone in Frederick County who needs help and dialed nine one one." And we're able to take the call here. If we can do this, imagine what we could do if you've got, you know, if you've got a tornado or a hurricane or some mm-hmm. sort of local crisis where you're overrun with calls or you need people who are more localized. We've got the ability to bend to, you know, sort of bend to your immediate and critical needs rather than just do things the same old way all the time. Um, I, I like to think that that's a move the needle opportunity for local decision makers to see how different this is than 20 years ago, right? Yeah, December last year was the first time that the state of Maryland was able to demonstrate taking 911 calls remotely from hundreds of miles away in some cases. And this was the, the brainchild of, of Ross Coates, the PSAP director in Harford County. And Ross said, there's, there has to be a way that we can have a secure connection from our dispatch console back to our radio system core that we have in our agency. What Ross was able to demonstrate with his county, excuse me, and a few other counties was that, yes, you could do that. You can use FirstNet for connectivity and dispatchers can then dispatch from anywhere there is that internet connectivity. It helps during um, hurricanes or disasters, if you have to, let's say, evacuate the center and you might have to be working from home or remote employees. We, we, we've learned about that during COVID when we needed to kind of stay isolated from each other. But many essential workers, thank goodness for them, you know, still went, had to go to work and they kept us going. But we also know that they got sick just as the rest, as the rest of us did. So how do we keep them safe? It was a jurisdiction in Virginia that revolutionized how to take 911 calls from home. Ross became aware of that and wanted to demonstrate that same thing for the state of Maryland. He's done that twice now to great effect. And as you said, Mike, when people come in and actually see things happening before their very own eyes, then they understand it better. And they can say, this is a capability we need to have in our center in our county to support our dispatchers and our public. Yeah, and I I remember talking to Ross about this and I was honestly super ner- nervous. I mean, when he said that he wanted to do this at our conferences and, you know, they had the capability, the first thought is, what if something goes wrong, right? And he assured me that because of FirstNet, because of the, the, the technology and the capability, that wouldn't happen. And it didn't happen. And it, and it was amazing to see that come to fruition and work out. And you mentioned, you know, COVID. And I remember hearing about PSAPs in a box, right? And 
that meant you know you could have a a, a a telecommunicator taking calls remotely. And I think we talk often about, hey, you know, what has COVID taught us? What can we take away from the pandemic? Some of the positives. And I think it forced our hand in many ways. And one of the things was we now know that this is possible, right? So if we have, if you know, hopefully we don't some sort of awful pandemic again, and people need to be isolated, we now know that this technology works. And then it can be deployed rapidly and it can go home with the with the 911 specialist and that they can work from home and stay safe. So that was that was really good takeaway. And I think we've demonstrated now with FirstNet that this is this is absolutely essential and it does work. And, you know, the, the, the possibilities seem to be endless here, Lori, especially if we can make sure it's secure and it's reliable and it has interoperability. And I think those are the, the check boxes there that FirstNet yeah. certainly met at our conferences. Yeah, I was a little bit nervous, too, Kevin, I'll admit. Um, but Ross had it under control and two other quick things that I wanted to just talk about. It also extends your workforce. So maybe jurisdictions that are struggling to hire uh, PSAP employees because we know they are worth their weight in gold, but that job is hard. Potentially, people don't have to live as close by to where they work. They could be in another state even and be an employee of that county. Another way to think about it is your home, there's a huge accident on the beltway. We need a dispatcher to jump on the headsets for two hours and help us get through this mess. They can do that if they're set up at home to go to help kind of that surge capacity as well. Unbelievable. It's, it's sort of like we're, we're solving more than one problem by having this whole infrastructure and this vision for how we can deliver service better. I mean, the flexibility for employees to locate where they want to and so forth, just, you know, just as, as, as an employer, that's an opportunity to reach more people. So, I mean, I'm not sure we would have thought of that several years ago, but here we are. But at the same time, like, absolutely. Maryland is a state where we can get flooding that might make accessible to low lying, you know, accessibility to low lying areas, almost impossible. Um, if, if your staff can't get to the ordinary place where you take the calls, your public safety answering point, um, you might end up you know, short staffed or, or unable to provide full service at a time when people really need it. So having the equipment that can be whatever, airborne in the back of a truck or in some mobile capacity or have, have the employees themselves uh, connected securely from a remote location. I mean, all of these are smart solutions to the sort of things that, that really happen in Maryland and across the country. Yeah, we, we've really proven that FirstNet is more than just the phone in your pocket. Of course, we, we want to have the phone in your pocket be on this network and have your call with the highest priority because that's a, what FirstNet delivers. Your call is the highest priority on the network. And no other network can, can really claim that they have that federal government oversight as well. They have people like me across the country out interacting with public safety every day. We're getting the feedback. We're hearing productive and we're hearing constructive feedback about how right. person it is. And like I said earlier, we want we want that. We want to hear how it's being used, what your good challenges are, and maybe some of your bad challenges. I mean, I, I can't. I, I know no one wants to sit around and listen listen to Grandpa tell these war stories, but the the tone of this this sort of where we are is so different from 20 years ago when i mean in 2002 we were sort of wringing our hands kind of saying well we really need more interoperability among systems and that's going to require a lot of 
informal coordination. But honestly, it's just a matter of you got to go to the FCC when they have these these big uh, auctions for tiny little bands of frequency. And if you get really lucky, you can get into the right sliver and then you can use your system and maybe you can be compatible with the next, the, the neighboring County or with your municipal police department or somebody like that. You know, if you get lucky, these pieces might come together, but it, it really felt like the wild West. Um, so I think it took a federal initiative and a, a, a private partner that had so much backbone to begin with to really transform this narrative and basically say, we've got a platform that can work with everybody that is virtually everywhere and that can occupy a priority slot for, you know, for the, the bandwidth that we need for this sort of thing. It's just, it's a totally different conversation. We were, we were really frustrated on this issue in 2001, 2002, 2003. I'm thrilled that, you know, a political generation or so later, we're talking about really exciting solutions. It is. And AT&T came to the table really all in, like I said, all of their towers, all of their spectrum, and then building thousands and thousands of more towers across the country guided by public safety. So we had a lot of meetings around Maryland and the country talking directly with people who are out there every day having struggles with communications. And we said, if, if we could build more towers in your county, where do you need them? And AT&T took that direct feedback and have now been able to improve the network based on what public safety has told us. That's why they say this is your network. This is by, built by public safety for public safety, because that is really the, the backbone is what has public safety told us they want, what kind of devices, what kind of applications they need, whatever they can tell us that we are able to then translate into real-world products and devices, we want to hear that. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's another thing that we haven't talked about yet. I mean, we're big fans of collaboration. We certainly understand that, you know, one size does not fit all. And I know that, as you've said, FirstNet puts a big emphasis on having people on the ground to collaborate and hear from the public safety community and sort of building this network based on their needs and where their needs are. So that that's amazing. And I know, Lori, we've seen some recent deployments here in Maryland, expansion of the network, new sites. That's exciting, too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've lived here my entire life and um, spent several years working at MEMA, now MDEM, and then was fortunate enough to work on Maryland First, and Michael referenced it earlier, the state land-level radio system. And then I was able to then move on to FirstNet. So I have a lot of skin in the game, so to speak, for my public safety friends across the state that I've come to know and, and just look forward to working with because I want them to just at least know about FirstNet and have that open mind. Try it and test it. I say, tell me what's going on. And if you're using the network, stay in touch with me. Tell me how AT&T is doing. How is the service in the retail store? If you called the help desk, what was it like? You know, if you were out in a really remote rural area, did you have any coverage? This network will kind of live and die by people who are using it. And if we don't have those users telling us how things are, we are not able to improve it as much as we can. And that's why I always like to stress, I'm not just a government person, you know, here because I'm in Maryland. I really am very invested in you all knowing how this network works and getting as many people on as possible that we all can have the, the best communications possible. I think, you know, Maryland's lucky to have, 
played a role in you know what ended up being this big first net footprint and and the effort by an awful lot of people in our state you included um to get us to this point uh i mean we're i think we're lucky to be able to benefit from that and, and since since you're from maryland you're aware that this is an election year for not only state officers but for local government elected officials almost all of our county officials are up for election this year and and that means we'll have an awful lot of people who will land in new leadership and decision-making roles in county government in the months ahead. So we'll have a big event in January where we try and give our new elected officials exposure to all the issues and challenges and opportunities that they'll they'll face and they'll benefit from in their new roles. Um, so, like, can you give us the sort of distilled version of you know, how do you bundle this up and give the elevator pitch? to the newly elected county commissioner for a Maryland jurisdiction who's vaguely aware that they've got a lot of responsibilities in public safety, but they're not an expert by any stretch. And they, you know, they don't know the megahertz and they don't know the PSAP and they don't know all the technical jargon and so forth. But at the base level, if you're not yet on board with FirstNet, what's the pitch for a Maryland local government decision maker to say you ought to check this out? You're, you're challenging me from my elevator pitch, which I love. I would say to a county elected or appointed official, your call is the highest priority in the network. And as the leader of that jurisdiction, we think your communications should be on first net. We know you need to communicate with your key leaders, amongst them public safety. And if they're not on first net already, we'd love to have that conversation to talk about how they can be. Lori, thank you so much. I mean, this is great. I, I, any closing comments that you want to make? I feel like we could talk about this for hours. It's fascinating stuff. And we're certainly, like Michael said, lucky to have you in Maryland. You have all these relationships. They go way back. And in, and in this industry, in public safety, trust is everything, right? And knowing the people that you work with closely, you have to have that bond. And so we are lucky to have you here. But anything else that you want to close with in terms of FirstNet um, or, or, or how people can learn more and how they can contact you? Yeah, just in closing, I just wanted to thank Governor Hogan's administration. He was one of the early governors to say yes to FirstNet back when that opportunity presented itself. And we've had a really good working relationship with with him and Pete Landon and uh, Bud Frank and others. And we're looking forward to working with the next administration because we need a strong leadership to say FirstNet should be the way Maryland goes. Not a mandate, but strongly look at it. And on the county level, the same thing. We, we hope to continue building those relationships with, with the new incoming executives and, and their staff. For more information, uh, firstnet.gov. Sometimes we say we're from the .gov part, and then firstnet.com is where you can find out more about FirstNet and place orders. So firstnet.gov is the government side of the house, and you can reach me through that website. And you can also go to firstnet.com and sign up for service if you are eligible. That's great. And, of course, we will include all these links. And also, there's a great video, I think, from uh, last year's winter conference that FirstNet put together that sort of showed off that technology. Michael, any closing comments from you before we wrap up? No, I, I just I'm grateful for your time, Lori, to kind of walk us through this and, and give some benefit for our listeners. I'll just say, I mean, I know you've, you've gathered this already, but um, I'm just so happy we've come this far that these are really important. Same here, Michael. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just I mean, it's, it's just really rewarding. Um, 
you know, doing this kind of work. And sometimes we're at the witness table battling over amendments on bills and so forth. But a lot of what MAKO wants to do for our members is advance opportunities so they can serve their residents, their constituents and their, their voters and taxpayers better. And this is absolutely one of those circumstances that year after year of pushing on interoperability and public safety communications and then next generation 911 and building partnerships like this with FirstNet, this is one of the ways we can deliver back for our local governments and they can do better by their citizens. I'm thrilled that we've gotten this far. And I, I love the support of MAKO. Thank you so much for highlighting this, for giving us opportunities at your conferences and other webinars. You all have been a tremendous partner because, like I said throughout this interview, county governments, those elected and appointed officials are so important in their communications, and we want to reach them, and you all are helping us in that way. So we really appreciate it. Well, lawyer, thank you so much. And of course, typically FirstNet is around the MAKO conferences, all of our public safety folks too. So you can learn there, learn more there as well. But we will again link all of this information in the show notes, but we'll leave it there for today. As always, if you enjoyed the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way all of these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and then of course the Conduit Street blog. But for Lori Stone and Michael Sanderson, this is Kevin Canale signing off and we will talk to you soon. 